I'd ask you to turn in the back of the hymnal uh, to Lord's Day 8. Lord's Day 8. It's found on, uh, or at least it begins on page 875. We're in the second of three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism, Sin, Salvation, and Service, Misery, Deliverance, and Gratitude, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, however you have memorized that. Um, And we have uh, dealt uh, with uh, why uh, we need a mediator uh, and who that mediator is and uh, how we come to know it uh, from the gospel in all of scripture. And then we noted in Lord's Day 7 that not all are saved as all are lost uh, and only those with true faith. And we considered what that was last week. And we asked the question then, what then must a Christian believe and all that is promised us in the gospel? Notice there's no least common denominator Christianity, all right? Um, When I taught my catechism students in Michigan, I would uh, say, what's what's necessary in order for you to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the catechism answers three things, to which they uh, snidely remarked, if we only need to know three things, then why do we need to study the rest of the catechism? I said, well, because there are not only three things. There's only three things necessary in order to be saved, Know how great your sin and misery is, know how, who it is that delivers you or how you're delivered from sin and misery, and how you're to thank God for delivering you from sin and misery. But that's not the entirety of the Christian religion. The Christian religion is comprehensive. Uh, the Bible is authoritative on everything of which it speaks, Cornelius Van Til says, and it speaks of everything. So we need to see all of life through the lenses of sacred scripture in order that we understand the world that God has placed us in properly. And um, so we need to uh, believe all that is promised us in the gospel, uh, not just uh, the least common denominators. And then it asks what that is, and it states the articles of the Apostles' Creed, which we recited this morning. And then Lord's Day 8 begins, and I'll read the question and ask you to respond with the answer. How are these articles divided into three parts? Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because... Very good. Now let's uh, uh, confirm, as generations of believers have done throughout the centuries, that what we see taught in the Heidelberg Catechism is a faithful reflection of the Word of God. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We'll look just at a couple of verses there, although we'll be looking at many verses, so keep your Bibles open. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, we read, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, 
and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, we see all three persons of the Trinity here, uh, God the Father speaking, uh, approbation with respect to his son who is um, uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then also the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. However, I should hasten to add, uh, this is not a proof text for the Trinity, all right? Just because all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned, it doesn't necessarily indicate that all three are one God. You could simply prove tritheism by this text. That is, that there are three gods, right? So the doctrine of the Trinity is not subject to proof texting, as it were. We need to take the entirety of Scripture, as the Catechism says. Why do we believe uh, this one simple being is three persons? Because that is how God has revealed it in his word. And we ought to be wary of this idea of proof texting, all right? The Bible is not a collection of proof texts, and that is not a good method of doing theology, proof texting things. Of course, we ought to root things in Scripture and base it on Scripture. That's true, all right? But the Bible is not a book of proof texts. The Bible is a book of books and letters, all right? And we need to take it in its entirety. And when we do that, we see that indeed how God has revealed himself in his word is as one simple being in three persons, which we're going to consider today. All right? So, all right. Trinity. Boy. If ever there was a philosophically abstracted dogma dreamed up by ivory ivory tower theologians which has no value for religion and life, this might be it. I'm being sarcastic. Rather than try and explain the complexities of this doctrine, it's my uh, intention uh, this morning to demonstrate the importance of this teaching, all right? The Trinity is fundamental to the Christian faith, and it is also unique to it. Herman Bovink, one of Pastor Dan's favorite authors, says, The confession of the Trinity is the sum of the Christian religion. Without it, neither creation nor redemption nor the sanctification can be purely maintained. In the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is contained the whole salvation of men. Immediately, we note its importance. All right? So, a few things here, five points. First of all, the biblical testimony. How has God revealed himself in his word so that we come to this teaching? Secondly, it's important for salvation. Thirdly, it's importance for your witness and for discernment. All right? Fourthly, it's important for worship. And fifthly, it's importance for contemporary um, uh, issues in our world. So, first of all, the biblical uh, testimony. There's nothing more plain if you read your Bible, nothing more basic than scriptural testimony to the fact that there is only one God. All right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the basic creed of uh, Judaism. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right? Nothing more fundamental than that, okay? In Exodus chapter 20, the preface to the Ten Commandments, all right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And then uh, the Ten Commandments after that, one God, all right? Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament, Paul affirms that God is 
one. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, uh, we read, There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So nothing, nothing more basic than that Bible teaches there's only one God, all right? And yet, and yet, all right, <clears throat> Uh, this one simple spiritual being, which we call God, uh, belong all the essential divine attributes. But it's equally true that Scripture reveals there's a plurality or a threeness in this one simple spiritual being. A threeness that never eliminates or destroys uh, the unity or the oneness of God, all right? For example, and I'm not going to have you look at all these verses because I'm going to have you look at some verses later. All right. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we're told, God said, let us make man in our image. Plural pronouns. Very interesting. All right. Or uh, Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, all right, the Holy Spirit uh, of God moved on the face of the waters. Or Psalm 110, verse 1. And this is a very important person. We live in a city uh, with uh, probably the highest Jewish population outside Israel, all right? So many Jewish people whom we can witness to. Here's a very good verse from the Old Testament to uh, put a little pebble in the shoe of an unbelieving Jewish person, all right? Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make uh, your enemies a footstool for your feet. How can David's Lord be David's son? All right? So, and uh, ask that question. It's a little cognitive dissonance for unbelieving Jewish people. But again, you have a plurality there, all right? Um, or Jesus, for example, says, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, all right? Um, Isaiah 9, often referred to uh, at Christmas time uh, with respect to uh, God. Uh, Son, mighty God, all right? Again, a plurality. In Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 3, uh, with respect to Ananias and Sapphira, he said they've not lied to man, but they've lied to God, all right? That is uh, the Holy Spirit, all right? Um, and uh, this one God... As he has revealed himself in his word, says, I am Father, I am Son, I am Holy Spirit. And so we have that reflected in our text. So you see why proof texting is an inadequate and faulty method of approaching theology, right? You can't prove the Trinity by looking at any one text. You can get a try, as we have in this text, but you can't get a unity or a try and a unity together. You have to put that together by looking at the entirety of what God has revealed in his word. And God, how has God revealed himself in his word? One God says, I am Father, I am Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is not something men have believed because it seemed reasonable to them. Because scripture allows no other view than that there is one God who is three persons, equal in power, substance, and glory. <clears throat> and this is a perfect example, here's a kind of an important point, all right, of the importance of submitting our minds to the word of God, all right? We're called to submit our minds to the word of God. You and I are not God. We do not sit in judgment over the word. All right? The word judges me and you. 
We sit in judgment under the word, not over the word, right? So when we have difficulty understanding something or we run, to, run into antinomies or apparent contradictions, we don't immediately assume that, oh, I found the mistake in the Bible, right? Rather, we seek understanding. And one of the uh, older theologians said, credo ut intelligam, I believe in order to understand. We don't understand in order to believe. That's liberalism, all right? Liberals and unbelievers say, I don't understand it, I'm not going to believe it. Christians say, I believe it, not because I put my brain on a shelf, right? No, I believe it in order to understand it. And we prayerfully search the scriptures to come to, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity, all right? Okay, just one kind of important side point, minor digression there, all right? This is a perfect example of submitting our reason to revelation. We may only know God as he has revealed himself to us. All right? And beyond or behind that, we cannot penetrate. Look at Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, a very important verse. All right? Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. First thing to notice before we move on in the verse. There are secret things. God is incomprehensible. All right? His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. We cannot fathom the mind of God except as he has revealed himself to us. All right? There are secret things. There are things that we will never know. Some people say, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven and find this out. All right? Listen, even when you get to heaven, you won't be God. There'll still be things you won't know. Why? Because God is incomprehensible and you're finite, right? Truth be known, use a phrase from my youth, all right? If God were to reveal everything about himself and everything that he does to you, it would be like pouring the Atlantic Ocean into a juice glass. It would literally blow your mind, right? There are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. All right, let's read on, read on. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So what do we do? We base it on how God has revealed himself in his word, right? That we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed himself to us, and we need to accept the revelation which he has given us in his word, and he has revealed himself as triune. All right, so it's some importance here. Tempest Fugates. <clears throat> it's important for salvation. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, verse 16, I, 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 I'm off the mark here. So, Verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. 
all right? Uh, we have a plurality there for our comfort. But we noticed this in the Athanasian Creed. We went through this some years ago, I think, while we were still at SDA. The Athanasian Creed is distinct from the Nicene and the, uh, Creed and the Apostles' Creed in that it says God is a trinity, and in order to be saved, you need to believe that. You say, whoa, 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 hold on. I'm not even sure I've got my mind wrapped around the Trinity. Now you're telling me if I don't believe it, I'm, I'm not saved? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's not just because Athanasius said it, all right? All the creeds, like the one we recited this morning, are Trinitarian in form, and they're all essential because heresies deal with this. We'll see that momentarily. But why is it important for salvation? Well, salvation and eternal life come by faith. And as we learned last week, true faith consists in believing everything God has revealed in his word. And specifically, faith consists in believing certain things about one particular person in history, Jesus Christ, right? The details of the message of his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit are matters of life and death importance to Christians, A challenge to biblical understanding is not just the challenge of opinion, but is jeopardizing eternal salvation. The Father plans salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. The Holy Spirit applies salvation. And each person of the Trinity is important for the salvation of any particular individual, man, woman, boy, or girl, all right? It's very interesting that in the first five centuries of the church, uh, people fought about this. And people were put to death if they didn't believe this. If you denied the Trinity, you were put to death because they believed that you were jeopardizing somebody's salvation. They saw it as a form of, if you will, spiritual murder by denying these things. So, very important. Secondly, it's important. It's important for your witness, all right? We live in a city that's pluralistic, not just with respect to religion, but also with respect to cults. And every cult, all right, what's a cult? A cult is a characteristic of something that is not the true Christian religion, all right? Sometimes it mimics it, sometimes it riffs off it, all right? But every cult denies some aspect of the Trinity, whether it's Jesus-only people, whether it's people that deny Jesus' deity, like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, or Mormons, all right, okay? Every cult denies some aspect of the Trinity. Somebody said there are, new, new, there are no new heresies, there are only new old heresies, all right? Whether it's cults, whether it's the New Age, whether it's liberalism, or whether it's other religions, they all deny the doctrine of the Trinity, all right? Um, Herman Bovink, again, uh, said, uh, said this. Every departure from this confession, that is of the Trinity, leads to error in the other uh, loci or heads of doctrine, just as a mistaken representation of the articles of faith can be traced back to a misconception of the doctrine of the Trinity. We can truly proclaim the mighty works of God only when we recognize and confess them as the one great work of Father, Son, and Spirit. Listen to me, all right? You have JWs come to your door? They claim to be Christians. You ever try to discuss things with them? They'll get out their Bible, all right? 
They, they know their Bible. Their Bible is, in many respects, different than ours, all right? But they know their Bible, all right? But they deny the eternal deity of the Son. And why is that important? Because if Jesus is not eternal God, as we learned two Lord's Days ago, he can't be a savior of sinners. Ah. Keep that in mind next time JWs come knocking. All right? Okay. <sighs> it's important for discernment as well. You know how many heresies have been taught in Sunday school classes in, in Orthodox Christian churches? Trying to teach the doctrine of the Trinity to children, all right, is often wrapped in heresy. Think of the three strands of a rope, all right? We're trying to teach the doctrine of the Trinity to young kids. Well, the Trinity is like this. It's like three strands, one rope. No, that's not Trinity, right? Because not each strand is equal in power, substance, and glory to the other. So what are you actually doing when you're trying to use those analogies, right? Or it's like water, right? Water is a liquid, and it freezes and becomes a solid, right? And then it can evaporate and become a gas, so we have a trinity. No, that's, that's heresy, all right? And I'm not going to name them by the names in the ancient church. But it's important to know this, all right? We ought not to be teaching heresies to children trying to make these things... These, we need to be teaching them to submit their minds to the Word of God. Show them in the Bible that these things are so, all right? All theological error traces back to a defective view of God, all right? And listen, this is why many children raised in Christian churches wind up getting seduced by Christian cults, right? Listen to a JW, all right? By the way, they come at your door, invite them in, say, no, no, let's talk, all right? All right? But listen to them. They're very sincere, right? But the road to hell is paved with sincere intentions, right? They know their Bible. They claim to be Christian, but because they deny the eternal deity of Jesus Christ and other things, all right, they're destined for hell unless they repent, all right? So kids are deceived by cults for various reasons, all right? As we train our children, we need to train them to have discernment, how to think, how to think biblically, all right? All right, so it's important uh, for salvation. It's important for your witness, important for discernment, all right? It's important for worship, all right? It's important for worship. We worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In that song we sang this morning, Come Thou Almighty King, Come Thou Incarnate Word, Come Holy Comforter, right? We're worshiping one God in three persons, all right? The language in liturgical texts, whether it's Matthew 28, I baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all right? Uh, Or whether it's uh, prayers uh, or greetings and benedictions, greeting we heard this morning was from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as our brother uh, uh, says, often prays, I pray in the name uh, uh, to the Father through the Son and the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? We use these, uh, this formula, triune formula. So it's important for worship um, as well. Lastly, it's important, um, oh, sorry, I got another quote from Bavin. This is a good one, all right? Always, there is a dual tendency in the human heart, the tendency to think of God as distant and removed, 
and to think of self and world as independent of God. And the tendency to draw God down into the world, to identify him with the world, and so to deify the self and the world. In the first instance, God is only afar off. In the second, he's only nearby. In the first, he is outside the world, above it, free from it. In the second, he has made it, inside it, and identical with it. But the church confesses both. He is both afar off and nearby. He is both highly exalted above all creatures and at the same time deeply condescending to them all. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our sanctifier. And the triune God is one God and is above us, for us, and in us. Amen. Lastly, the teaching of the Trinity is important for issues past and present. Now, not everybody here studied philosophy, all right? But some of you have. I was a philosophy major, God spare me, when I was in college. And one of the problems that has uh, puzzled uh, philosophers down throughout the ages, ever, ever since the pre-Socratic philosophers, Heraclitus and Aximander, Amenides, right, is the problem of the one in many. Now, if you don't know what that is, Go to a river. Go over to the, the Hudson River or the East River, whichever is closest, right? And as you look at the river, it's the same river. And yet, because it's moving, it's always different. So how do you have one and many? How do you have sameness and differentness? And that problem has plagued philosophers. Do you know this is kind of the futility of uh, secular philosophy? Philosophers today still can't answer that question. They still struggle with the problem of the one and many. Unity and diversity, right? How do you reconcile? How, how do those two fit together? They, they, they don't have... Truth be known, you go to the top uh, philosophical schools in the country, they can't, they can't give you an answer why two plus two equals four. Now, has God made foolish the wisdom of this world or not? <laughs> People pay $50,000 a year to go to class with these guys who can't prove that two plus two equals four. Save your money, folks. Save your money. All right? What's the solution to the problem of the one and the many? The Trinity. God is one simple spiritual being. But he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? He's one and he's many. Equal in power and substance and glory. He does not sacrifice his unity by being plural. He does not sacrifice his plurality by being one. Right? One in the many. All right. Enough philosophy. What about egalitarianism? So problem past, problem present. Egalitarianism is a huge problem in our society. It's a big word. Let me break it down for you. Spell it out. Egalite is one of the cries of the French Revolution, right? Fraternite, liberté, egalité, right? Brotherhood, freedom or liberty, and equality. Today we have equity, all right? <clears throat> a little bit of a different story, and let's stick with equality, all right? Egalitarianism says we're all the same. We're all equal. There's no difference. Particularly this comes to bear when you think of uh, uh, second and third wave feminism, even fourth wave feminism, all right? That there's no difference between men and women, right? Who was it, Gloria Steinem, who said women, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, Right? Now, this perspective, egalitarianism, has captured our society by and large today, all right? It's captured the military, it's captured civil life, it's captured 
even the church, all right? This has led to all kinds of problems, which I won't take time to spell out, all right? But the doctrine of the Trinity helps us to see that egalitarianism is fundamentally flawed. Because egalitarianism says you cannot have equality if you are different. If men and women are different, then they can't be equal. All right? Now, it's led to all kinds of ancillary problems and errors. I'm not going to go into them today. But the doctrine of the Trinity maintains both, right, equality and distinction, difference. The Bible says that God has revealed himself, as we looked at a few of those verses, as one simple spiritual being. I, the Lord, your God, right? Or Shema Israel, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? And yet, he's also plural, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, I'm going to use a big term here, right? Ontologically, right, in his being, God is equal. The Father is no less than the Son. The Son is no less than the Father and the Son. The Father is no less than the Son and the Spirit. They are ontologically, in terms of their being, equal in power, substance, and glory. Okay? And yet, economically, the Heidelberg Catechism detailed this. In terms of their function, all right, it says, how are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation. God the Son and our deliverance. God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Now, don't be misled or confused here. God the Son and God the Spirit were equal in creation with God the Father. All right? God the Father was equal in salvation with God the Son and God the Spirit. God the Spirit was equal in redemption. and So they're all equally involved. But economically, right? Jesus says, I have come to do thy will. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, right? So God the Son <clears throat> became, uh, became incarnate, all right, in obedience to the Father in order to accomplish salvation. And God the Spirit, all right, comes sent by the Father and the Son, all right? Remember Acts chapter 2, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has now poured forth what you see and hear on the day of Pentecost. That is the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ receives from the Father the Holy Spirit and pours it out, pours the Holy Spirit out upon the church, pours him out on the church, all right? But the Holy Spirit comes not to magnify himself, as we hear in many quarters of the Christian church, right? As if it's all about the Holy Spirit and spirit this and spirit that. No, when we read the farewell discourses in John 14, 15, 16, we're taught explicitly that he will mag Jesus says when the comforter comes, he will magnify me. The Holy Spirit's ministry, if you will, is by and large to shine the light on Jesus. So the Spirit subordinates himself to the Son and the Father, all right? So we have ontological unity, equal in power, substance, and glory, economical, all right, subordination. Father comes, uh, excuse me, the Son comes in obedience to the Father, the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son in obedience uh, to exalt and glorify uh, the Son. So, all right. That was a mouthful. Hope it wasn't too much. But my point is, 
You could spend hundreds of hours plumbing the doctrine of the Trinity for its theological breadth and depth and richness. My point this morning is to highlight to you why this is important, all right? It's important for salvation. It's important for your witness and for your discernment. It's important for worship, and it teaches us valuable lessons about problems past and present. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, We love you, Lord Jesus Christ, for accomplishing our salvation, and we love you, Holy Spirit, for taking what Jesus did thousands of miles away and thousands of years ago and applying it to our hearts and minds today. We ask, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would continue to be known and made known and glorified and enjoyed throughout the entirety of the earth. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen.